Good afternoon and welcome to The Daily with Syl Stein on Anchor FM. On today's show, there is an author spotlight I'm doing. I am Sylvia Stein. Welcome to The Daily with Syl Stein. I am Syl Stein or author Sylvia Stein. On today's show, I will be talking about F. Scott Fitzgerald and his books, but especially one of my favorite books, which is The Great Gatsby. So I will start off and dive right in. I've been trying to do this show for a bit and I keep getting interrupted, so I do apologize if there is a pause on this show. Plus, my children have school, so there's never a good time to do a podcast these days, so my deepest apologies on that. And here we go. F. Scott Fitzgerald was born in St. Paul, Minnesota in 1896. He attended Princeton University, joined the United States Army during World War I, and published his first novel, This Side of Paradise, in 1920. That same year, he married Zelda Zare, and for the next decade, the couple lived in New York, Paris, and on the Riviera. Fitzgerald's novels include The Beautiful and Damned, The Great Gatsby, and Tender is the Night. He died at the age of 44 while working on The Last Tycoon. Fitzgerald's fiction has secured his reputation as one of the most important American writers of the 20th century. And that's exactly it. One of my favorite books, I read this back in high school, and I'm 50, so this was back in 19, I want to say 88, 89. I had uh, English 5 with Mr. Erickson, and I learned so much about the the, the great literary works of of our time and the, the the Great Gatsby is one of my favorites. We got to read the book and also watch the movie with Robert Redford and Mia Farrow that, and also um, Bruce Dern played Tom Buchanan. So if you're not familiar with The Great Gatsby, please look for that book and I will read you a little bit about that. The Great Gatsby, F. Scott Fitzgerald's third book, stands as the supreme achievement of his career. First published in 1925, this quintessential novel of the Jazz Age has been acclaimed by a generation of readers. The story of the mysteriously wealthy Jay Gatsby and his love for the beautiful Daisy Buchanan of lavish parties on Long Island at a time when the New York Times noted gin was the national drink and sex the national obsession. It is an exquisitely crafted tale of America in the 1920s. But it talked about, you know, uh, themes that are a little bit, you know, uh, deeper themes, of course. Um, and and uh, the main theme is Jay Gatsby and his love for Daisy, the American dream. All these different themes come out of it. And for me, this was one of my favorite books. Um, a true classic of 20th century literature, this edition has been updated to include the author's final revisions a personal forward by his granddaughter, Eleanor Lanahan, a new introduction by two-time National Book Award winner, Jasmine Ward, and a note on the composition and text by editor and Fitzgerald scholar, James L. W. West III. Now, I got this paperback copy. I used to have an older copy of it, and I no longer had it, so I had I ordered a paperback through Amazon, and that's the one I have. And it's amazing. Now, it talks here. Um, there's a quote in the front. Then wear the gold hat, if that will move her. If you can bounce high, bounce for her too. Till she cry, lover, gold, had it, high bouncing lover, I must have you. 
Thomas Parker uh, uh, Divernilis wrote the, uh, uh, the poem. And it, this was edited by James L. W. West III. And uh, he dedicates it to Zelda. And then there's an introduction. And as I said, the introduction is this uh, here. Um, okay. Here, give me a moment. There's a forward by his granddaughter, a new introduction by two-time National Book Award winner Jasmine Ward. So she wrote the introduction, but I'll read a little bit about what his granddaughter writes. It is my great honor as F. Scott Fitzgerald's granddaughter to crack some literary champagne over this edition of The Great Gatsby and launch this great American novel in its purest form, masterfully restored and as close as possible to Scott's original intentions. I never met my grandparents. Scott died young in 1940 at the age of 44. I was born in 1948. Zelda wrote my mother from Highland Hospital, sorry for the background noise, in Asheville, North Carolina. I longed to see the baby, but she perished in a fire a couple of months later. Fortunately, both of my grandparents left such a a trove of intimate letters and blazingly honest essays that I feel I have come to know them. By the time Scott began to write The Great Gatsby, he had already produced two highly autobiographical novels. In 1923, he wrote his editor at Scribner's, Maxwell Perkins, that he wanted his third novel to be different. I want to write something new, something extraordinary and beautiful and simple and intricately patterned. Although Gatsby is a work of his imagination, Scott's experiences, along with those of family and friends, are elemental to the book. So she wrote that about uh, the on the forward, and this is from their granddaughter, Eleanor Lanahan. So here, as it says, this is a true classic of 20th century literature, Scott Fitzgerald third book uh, is the supreme achievement of his career and uh, basically here we see in the beginning it starts off with Nick Carraway and he's um, he starts off by saying in my younger and more vulnerable years my father gave me some advice that I've been turning over in my mind ever since whenever you feel like criticizing anyone he told me just remember that all the people in this world haven't had the advantages that you've had. And that's a very powerful line in the way it begins. And then you you know you start to um, hear more about what Nick tells you. He's narrating the story, and he's narrating the story. And then he talks about you know when he he goes into his father and their relationship, and then he says. Um, let's see here. When I came back from the East last autumn, I felt that I wanted the world to be in uniform and at a sort of moral attention forever. I wanted no more righteous excursions with privileged glimpses into the human heart. Only Gatsby, the man who gives his name to this book, was exempt from my reaction. Gatsby, who represented everything for which I have an unaffected scorn, it personally if personality is an unbroken series of successful gestures, then there was something gorgeous about him, some heightened sensitivity to the promises of life. 
Um, let's see here. As if he were related to one of those intricate machines that register earthquakes 10,000 miles away. This responsiveness had nothing to do with that flabby imperson- impressional ability which is dignified under the names of the creative temperament. It was an extraordinary gift for hope, a romantic readiness, just as I have never found in any other person, and which is not likely I shall ever find again. No, Gatsby turned out all right at the end. It is what preyed on Gatsby, what foul dust floated in the wake of his dreams that temporarily closed out my interest in the abortive sor- sorrows and short-winded elations of men. So that's pretty powerful as well. Then he talks about his family. My family had been prominent, well-to-do people in this middle western city for three generations. The Caraways are something of a clan, and we have a tradition they were descended from the Dukes of Bukliash. But the actual founder of my line was my grandfather's brother, who came here in 51, sent a substitute to the Civil War, and started the wholesale hardware business that my father carries on today. I never saw this great uncle, but I'm supposed to look like him, with special reference to the rather hand-boiled paintings that hangs in my father's office. I graduated from New Haven in 1915, which is where um, F. Scott Fitzgerald said he graduated, uh, is said to be uh, graduated from, just a quarter of a century after my father and a little later. I participated in that delayed, give me a second here. Let me see if I can change the mic. See, yeah, to fade out the, the other noise, sorry. I graduated from New Haven in 1915, just a quarter of a century after my father, and a little later I participated in that delayed Teutonic migration known as the, known as the Great War. I enjoyed the com- the, the counterate so, so thoroughly that I came back restless. Instead of being the warm center of the world, the Middle West now seemed like the ragged edge of the universe, so I decided to go east and then and learned the bond business. Everybody I knew was in the bond business, so I suppose I could support one more, say could support one more single man. All my aunts and uncles talked it over as if they were choosing a prep school for me and finally said, why yes, which very grave, hesitant faces, with very grave, hesitant faces. Father agreed to finance me for a year and after Various delays, I came east permanently, I thought, in the spring of of 22. The practical thing was to find rooms in the city, but it was a warm season, and I had just left the country of wild lawns and friendly trees. So when a young man at the office suggested that we take a house together in a commuting town, it sounded like a great idea. He found the house, a weather-beaten cardboard bungalow, at 80 a month, but at the last minute, the firm ordered him to Washington, and I went out to the country alone. I had a dog. At least I had him for a few days, a few days until he ran away, and an old Dodge and a Finnish woman who made my bed and breakfast and cooked breakfast and mattered Finnish wisdom to herself over the electric stove. 
then he goes on and talks. This is just Nick uh, narrating the story. I'm just reading you little pieces of the story of The Great Gatsby. And then uh, he talks here about, um, let's see here. Let's move on to where he talks about his cousin Daisy. Okay. I lived at West Egg, the, well, the less fashionable of the two, though this is a most superficial tag to express the bizarre and not a little sinister contrast between them. My house was at the very trip, very tip of the egg, only 50 yards from the sound, and squeezed between two huge places that rented for 12, sorry, I think it disconnected me again. goodness. Give me a second. We'll be right back. And I'm back. I'm just going to do this without the mic because it gets more confusing when I do. I'll, I'll have to figure that out because I don't want it to sound mumbled. <laughs> so uh, the next part is I lived at West Egg, the well, the less fashionable of the two. Though this is a most superficial tag to express the bizarre and not a little sinister contrast between them. My house was at the very tip of the egg, only 50 yards from the sound and squeezed between two huge places that rented for twelve or 15000 a season. The one on my right was a colossal affair by any standard. It was a factual imitation of some Hotel de Ville in Normandy, with a tower on one side span... Uh, spanking new under a thin beard of raw ivy and a marble swimming pool and more than 40 acres of land and garden. It was Gatsby's Gatsby's mansion, or rather as I didn't know, Mr. Gatsby. It was a mansion inhabited by a gentleman of that name. My own house was an eyesore, but it was a small eyesore and it had been overlooked so I had a view of the water, a partial view of my neighbor's lawn, and the consoling proximity of millionaires, all for $80 a month. Across the cor- cor- courtesy bay, sorry, the white palaces of fashionable East Egg glittered along the water, and the history of the summer really begins on the evening I drove over there to have dinner with Tom Buchan- with with the Tom Buchanans. Daisy was my second cousin, once removed, and I'd known Tom in college. And just after the war, I spent two days with them in Chicago. This is where the story begins. I'm not going to read it all, but I'm going to read this part. Her husband, among various physical accomplishments, had been one of the most powerful ends that ever played football at New Haven a national figure, in a way, one of those men who reached such an acute limited excellence at 21 that every everything 
afterwards savers of anticlimax. His family were enormously wealthy, even in college. His freedom with money was a matter for reproach, but now he left Chicago and come east in a fashion that rather took your breath away. For instance, he brought down a string of polo ponies from Lake Forest. It was so hard to realize that a man in my own generation was wealthy enough to do that. And then he goes on to say here, he's talking about obviously wealth and the all that, and you know, all that changed Tom and you know, the way that they lived. Let's see here. Let me get to the other girl, Daisy, made an attempt to rise. She leaned slightly forward with a consciousness expression. Then she laughed an absurd, charming little laugh. And I laughed too and came forward into the room. I'm paralyzed with happiness. She laughed again as if she had said something very witty and held my hand for a moment, looking up into my face, promising that there was no one in the world. She so much, sorry to hear, uh, sorry for the background notes. She so much wanted to see. That was the way she had. She hinted in a murmur that the surname of the balancing girl was Baker. I've heard it said that Daisy's murmur was only to make people lean toward her, an irrelevant criticism that made it no less charming. And we'll be right back with more. Welcome back to The Daily with Silstein on Anchor FM presents The Coffee Chronicles. And I'll continue here with what he says about Daisy. I look back at, I look back at my cousin who began to ask me questions in her low, thrilling voice. It was the kind of voice that the ear follows up and down as if each speech is an arrangement of notes that will never be played again. Her face was sad and lovely with bright things in it, bright eyes and a bright, passionate voice. Uh, mouth, but there was an excitement in her voice that men who had cared for her found difficult to forget a singing compulsion. So it talks about, and I remember my teacher used to say she had a Cersei voice, kind of like melody, like very high pitched melody. Me, it sounded like a melody. If you watch the new, and if you watch Mia Farrow uh, on The Great Gatsby with uh, Robert Redford, you'll see it, but you also watch. Um, uh, what's her, the actress' name? I know her last name is Mulligan. In Boz Lerman's uh, Gatsby, watch her as Daisy, and you'll see what what they're talking about the the type of, of voice that Daisy had, and the the type of of, of reaction that, that you know. Both versions I thought were good. Of course, the book does take away a lot. Uh, the uh, new version, Boz Lerman puts his own interpretation of it. 
But I I still found it fascinating. Well, you know, I'm a big fan of Leonardo DiCaprio, and I thought him and Tobey Maguire as Nick Carraway was awesome. So anyway, that's another story for another day. But if you take a look at Carrie Mulligan uh, and uh, Mia Farrow, you can compare the two ways that the actresses portray this depiction of Daisy Buchanan. So here we go. She says, Do they miss me? She cried ecstatically. The whole town is desolate. All the cars have the left rear wheel painted black as a morning reef, and there's a persistent wail all night along the North Shore. How gorgeous. Let's go back, Tom, tomorrow. Then she added irre irrelevantly, You ought to see the baby. I'd like to. She's asleep. She's three years old. Haven't you ever seen her? Never. Well, you ought to see her. She's... Tom Buchanan, who had been hovering restlessly about the room, stopped and rested his hand on my shoulder. What you doing, Nick? I'm a bondman. Who with? I told him. Never heard of them, he remarked decisively. This annoyed me. You will, I answered shortly. You will if you stay in the East. Oh, I'll stay in the East, don't you worry, he said, glancing at Daisy and then back at me, as if he were alert for something more. I'd be a goddamn fool to live anywhere else. At this point, Miss Baker said, absolutely, with such sat suddenness that I started. It was the first word she had uttered since I came into the room. Evidently, it surprised her as much as it did me, for she yawned and with a series of rapid, deft movements, stood up into the room. I'm stiff, she complained. I've been lying on that sofa for as long as I can remember. Don't you look at me. Uh, don't look at me, Daisy retorted. I've been trying to get you to New York all afternoon. No thanks, said Miss Baker to the four cocktails she's just in from the pantry. I'm absolutely in training. Her host looked at her incredus incredulously. You are. You are. He took down his drink as if he were a drop in the bottom of a glass. How you ever getting anything done in, done is beyond me. I looked at Miss Baker, wondering what it was she got done. I enjoyed looking at her. She was a slender, small-breasted girl with an erect carriage, which she accentuated by throwing her body backward at the shoulders like a young cadet. Her gray, sun-strained eyes looked back at me with polite, reciprocal curiosity out of a wan, charming, disconnected face. Dis, sorry, discontented face. It occurred to me now that I had seen her, or a picture of her somewhere before. You live in West Egg, she remarked contemptu contemptuously. I know somebody there. I don't know a single. You must know Gatsby. Gatsby, demanded Daisy. What Gatsby? Before I could reply that he was my neighbor, dinner was announced, wedging his tense arm imperatively under mine. Tom Buchanan compelled me from the room as though he were moving a checker to another square. So this is where it gets tense about, you know, the relationship with Daisy. You find out about Gatsby, her reaction when he when uh, Miss Baker mentions Gatsby to Nick. And then Tom gets tense. And and if you this is this is where it gets very intense there. 
And now we go on to Then here, let's see, there's problems with Daisy and Tom, but I want to hear about okay, I want to know where Nick talks to Gatsby. And one of the things I noticed that is very common with F. Scott Fitzgerald's writing, he really loves his adverbs. Here, this is a chapter in chapter three. Um, where he says there was music from my neighbor's house so the summer nights uh through the summer nights in his blue gardens men and girls came and went like moths among the whispering and the champagne and the stars every friday five crates of oranges and lemons arrived from a fruiterer in new york every monday these same oranges and lemons left his back door in a pyramid of pulpless halves at least once a fortnight a corpse of caterers came down with several hundred feet of canvas and enough colored lights to make a Christmas tree of Gatsby's enormous garden. On buffet tables garnished with glistening hors d'oeuvres, spice-baked hams crowded against salads of harlequin designs and pastry pigs and turkeys bewitched to a dark gold. By seven o'clock, the orchestra has arrived. No thin, fine piece of fare, but a whole pitful of oboes and trombones and saxophones and violas and cornets and piccolos and low and high drums. The light grow, grows, the lights grow brighter as the earth lurches away from the sun. And now the orchestra is playing yellow cocktail music and the opera of voices pitches a key higher. And Lerman, Boz Lerman did a lot of this in his, in the new version of The Great Gatsby. If you take a look at the book, and what Lerman, I know the music, a lot of it is contemporary, but the way he designed it for the movie has a lot to do with the book, if you if you take a look at that. But it's all your own interpretation. That's a story for another day, as I said. Suddenly, it says, I believe, oh, sorry, I believe that on the first night I went, on, I went to Gatsby's house, I was one of the few guests who had actually been invited. People were not invited. They went there. They got into automobiles, which bore them out to Long Island, and somehow they ended up at Gatsby's door. Once they were there, introduced by somebody who knew Gatsby, and after that, they conducted themselves according to the rules of behavior associated with amusement parks. Sometimes they came and went without having met Gatsby at all. I had been actually invited. A chauffeur in a uniform of Robin's eggs blew across my lawn early that Saturday morning with a surprising formal note from his employer. The honor would be entirely Gatsby's, it said. I would attend his little party that night. He had seen me several times and had intended to call on me long before, but a peculiar combination of circumstances had prevented it. Signed, Jay Gatsby in a majestic hand. Dressed up in white 
flannels, I went over to his lawn a little after seven and wandered around rather ill at ease among swirls and eddies of people I didn't know, though here and there was a face I had noticed on the commuting train. So I was on my way to get roaring drunk from sheer embarrassment when Jordan Baker came out of the house and stood at the head of the mar- marble tr- steps, leaning a little black, uh, a little backward and looking with contemptuous interest down into the garden. Welcome or not, I found it necessary to attach to attach myself to someone before I should begin to address cordial remarks to the passerbyers. Hello, I roared, advancing toward her. My voice seemed unnaturally loud across the garden. I thought you might be here, she responded absently. There's another adverb. As I came up, I remembered you lived next door to... She held my hand impersonally as a promise that she'd take care of me in a minute and gave ear to two girls in twin yellow dresses who stopped at the front of the steps. Hello, they cried. Sorry you didn't win. That was the... That was for the golf tournament she had lost in the finals the week before. You don't know who we are, said one of the girls in yellow, but we met you here about a month ago. You dyed your hair since then, remarked Jordan. And I started, but the girls had moved carefully on, uh, moved casually on, and her her remark was addressed to the premature moon produced like the supper, no doubt, out of a caterer's basket. With Jordan's slender golden arm resting in mine, we descended the steps and sought, sauntered above the garden. A tray of cocktails floated at us through the twilight, and we sat down at a table with the two girls in yellow and three men, each one introduced to us as Mr. Mumble. Do you come to these parties often? inquired Jordan of the girl beside her. The last one was the last one was the one I met you at, answered the girl in an alert, confident voice. She turned to her companion. Wasn't it for wasn't it for you, Lucille? It was for Lucille too. I like to come, Lucille said. I never care what I do, so I always have a good time. When I was here last I tore my gown on a chair, and he asked me my name and address. Inside inside of a week I got a package from Croriers with a new evening gown in it. Did you keep it? asked Jordan. Sure I did. I was going to wear it tonight, but it was too big in the bust and I, and had to be altered. It was glass blue with lavender beads. $265. There's something funny about a fellow that'll do a thing like that, said the other girl eagerly. He doesn't want any trouble with anybody. Who doesn't? I inquired. Gatsby, who doesn't? I inquired. Gatsby, somebody told me. The two girls and Jordan leaned together confidently. Somebody told me they thought he'd, he'd killed a man once. He killed a man once. A thrill passed over all of us. The three Mr. Mumbles bent forward and listened eagerly. So so there we... So basically, this is where they're at the party. And this is where I'm going to leave it. And I'm trying to find where Tom... Or he finally talks to Tom. I mean, sorry, to Nick. Okay. Okay, this is where everybody's talking about Gatsby. Okay, so it says. So here it says, almost at the moment Mr. Gatsby ident- identified himself. Oh, okay, here it is. I'll read that. So, having. It says, much. She says, 
this is an unusual party for me. I haven't even seen the host. I live over there. I waved my hand at the invisible hedge in the distance. And this man, Gatsby, sent over his chauffeur with an invitation. For a moment, he looked at me as if he had failed to understand. I'm Gatsby, he said suddenly. What, I exclaimed. Oh, I beg your pardon. I thought you knew, old sport. I'm afraid I'm not a very good host. He smiled understandingly, much more than understandingly. It was one of those rare smiles with a quality of eternal reassurance in it that you may come across four or five times in life. It faced or seemed to face the whole external world for an instant and then concentrated on you with an irresistible prejudice in your favor. And I'm going to leave it at that for today. And, and as I said, the Baz Luhrmann version of The Great Gatsby is as clo- is very close to the book, I, I must say. There's differences in everything, but if you look at the dialogue and then the way Colby McGuire gives life to Nick Carraway, you'll really enjoy that. But please read the book first because it is important. And as I said, um, F. Scott Fitzgerald wrote Tender is the Night, The Last Tycoon. Um, he wrote many other stories, uh, including short stories. And one of his most famous is The Curious Case of Benjamin Buttons. And if you remember, this also became a movie with Brad Pitt. And I will share more about F. Scott Fitzgerald in the next uh, show that I do on the Daily with Solstein on Anchor FM, a part two of F. Scott Fitzgerald, and I'll do more reading on The Great Gatsby. And I hope that you all enjoyed today's episode. I know it was a little out there here and there, but I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, This was one of the books that I've loved, and I know literature sometimes can get uncomfortable, but for me, this was the book. I, I read it back in the day when we could read books that were, you know, I know that times have changed and people have added, they're controversial. For me, I'm glad I was able to read the books that I did at the time that I, you know, was growing up. For me, uh, reading To Kill a Mockingbird, to read uh, Mice and Men, to read all these different types of books added a lot of different takes on literature. And literature is not supposed to be perfect, it's supposed to make you uncomfortable. And I, at least for me, you know, this is, and, and I think this is one of the greatest books ever written. That's just for me. One of my favorite books among To Kill a Mockingbird. You know, the, that's another one of my favorite books. Um, but there, and there's many that I have. I love books. But um, I hope you've enjoyed today's The Daily Whistle Stein on Anchor FM, where I highlight on author F. Scott Fitzgerald. And as I said, he was from was born in St. Paul, Minnesota in 1896. He attended Princeton University, joined the United States Army during World War I, and published his first novel was The Side of Paradise in 1920. And then from there, he married his sweetheart, uh, Zelda Zaire, and she was also a writer. And then uh, it, he also wrote beautiful, The Beautiful and Damned, The Great Gatsby, Tender is the Night. And he was working on uh, The Last Tycoon. But he's also written many short stories. So I hope that you will check out the works by F. Scott Fitzgerald if you haven't already. His birthday is coming up, I believe, this month or already passed. It's coming up this month of September. And uh, I hope that... Uh, that you will check out his books. And I hope you've enjoyed the Daily with Solstein on Anchor FM. 
Um, and we'll be back with more of the Daily Whistle Stein on Anchor FM presents the Copy Chronicles. Sorry about the noise. My son is playing a game or something. I don't know. My apologies. But um, I hope that you all have a great, great evening. I'll be back with more podcasts. I'll try to do this part in the morning. It gets a little complicated with kids in the house. But I hope you've enjoyed the Daily Whistle Stein on Anchor FM. And uh, tomorrow I will try to do part two on the Daily Whistle Stein Presents the Coffee Chronicles. And I hope you have a great one. Check out the other podcasts where I talk about the books by Toni Morrison. And I'll try to do more readings on it as well. Have a blessed one. Thank you for joining me on the Daily with Solstein on Anchor FM. Have a great day. Bye-bye. Happy Monday.